social situation where you're forced to make conversation with someone you know very little about, usually it's easy enough to begin with small talk about the weather, a current event, or some other superficial topic. But what happens when you run out of little topics to discuss and the awkward silence is unbearable? Welcome to Help! I'm going to a dinner party! The podcast that gives you ample discussion topics that are more interesting than pop culture gossip. I'm Molly Ivan, your host. Today I'm taking the discussion in a bit of a different direction. I've been attending Liberty University for some time now as I finish my degree in government public administration. The other day, while I was talking about my upcoming graduation, I had a friend ask me, so what does this degree mean for you and your family? I obviously thought that he was just asking me what sort of career I planned to pursue, so I began telling him my aspirations and kind of my plan, and he's like, no, no. I want to know, what does public administration and public policy mean to you? I must admit, I was not ready to answer the question that was posed. So there was a really long, awkward silence. And after some thought, I decided it was best to provide my answer, not only to him, but also to my podcast listeners. In this episode, I want to look at public policy, um, its current processes, its future, and pose a few questions that I still have about the field of public administration as well as look at um, the current conversations in academics that surround public policy. Many people are already familiar with the outward stages of policymaking. There's agenda setting, policy formation, adoption or decision making, and implementation. And while these stages accurately describe how a policy makes its way into the public system, there's still more that happens before and during this process. A few of these concepts laid out by Robert Gooden and his colleagues are persuasion, bargaining and or steering, and networked governments. You can find traces of all three of these concepts throughout the stages of policymaking, but some are concentrated in one stage more so than others. For instance, persuasion is apparent throughout all the stages of public policymaking, um, but kind of has the strongest influence during the decision-making phase. Bargaining really makes a difference during the policy formation phase and shows up during the last stage, implementation. Networked governance is most obvious during the first two stages, agenda planning and policy formulation. So there's specific hills that a policymaker must climb in order to have an effective policy implemented. Um, People want to know why a policy is necessary and what it means for them personally. If they can't understand its purpose, the policy will never gain the momentum or support that is necessary to make things run efficiently. And this is our idea of persuasion. It's the necessary door-to-door salesman pitch that has to happen so that people will buy into the idea. The policies won't work if people don't see them as an asset. Some politicians like to do this sort of form of persuasive definitions, which is essentially changing the definition of a word in order to fit your agenda and cause an emotional stir in those around you to gain their support. 
A really good example of this is President Reagan's push to cut federal spending on assistant programs. He proposed that the funding will still be available for the truly needy. In this case, the truly needy hit a nerve in the American people. So he was able to gain their support and keep it while cutting the funding for things like welfare and other assistance programs and keep his earlier political promises. In the words of Robert Gooden, policymaking is a matter of persuasion. Which leads nicely into the second characteristic of public policy creation. Um, that's bargaining versus steering. You simply cannot implement a policy that's unsupported or misunderstood and assume that it'll be practiced in the way in which it was intended. If people are unenthused by the policy procedures, there's way less of a chance that they'll actually follow them the way it's intended. Total central control just simply doesn't work. It's either fraud or fiction. This is the case of steering. Do it because I said so is not a motivator in today's world. Modernism has created a higher number of educated citizens and they demand to be a part of policy creation. In addition, there's a certain amount of discretion that provides a sort of leeway in public policy, and this isn't a good thing. If you give them an inch, they're gonna take a mile. So instead of steering, bargaining has become more popular in policy adherence. Policymakers are realizing that a system of balanced incentives works way better than trying to get everyone to comply with their guidelines and then punishing them if they don't. In other words, you get more flies with honey, especially with economic policies that affect the profits of large corporations. The last sort of invisible force that I want you to be aware of is networked governance, which isn't really a new concept. In fact, it's been around for quite some time. Kings used to use a form of networked governance to maintain control over their um, areas by appointing governing leaders in that area to maintain the order while the king governed from afar. Um, that's why there's littler castles within a giant kingdom. Nowadays, it takes a bit of a different role in policymaking, but it's still really, really effective. Networked governance is kind of like a floating alliance, I guess. It acts as a way for downtrodden citizens to get their voice heard and apply pressure on their governments for policy changes that will affect them. Um, an example of this would be humanitarian groups that see unethical treatment of people by their governments and find ways to pressure the government into making changes in the policy. Again, this is an example of how people desire more interaction with their policymakers. It's important to public administrators that they acknowledge this and they're willing to work with their citizens to create effective policies. Most of the time, it's easier said than done because where there's rules and guidelines and expectations, there's also a lot of controversies and problems and issues that surround it. Perhaps the most obvious of these issues is that you can't please everyone all of the time. Public policies are interpreted differently by many different people. I think that one of the best known cases of this happening is um, President Obama's Affordable Care Act. 
a lot of people that supported this policy were disappointed with the impl- implementation when they found out that their insurance policy premiums were much higher than they expected and now they were mandatory. Everyone kind of has a different standard that they expect public administrators to perform at. They expect different things and um, services from these public policies. It's a daunting task because public servants and the services they provide will never ever be good enough for everybody. It's just not gonna work. It's like having a classroom full of kittens. You can't all put them to sleep at the same time. It just doesn't work. It's a constant balancing act between what's expected, what's needed, and what can actually be done. Another problem that arises in creating a public policy is that one public issue could have a large variety of solutions. Any public servant will say that addressing the root of a problem is the best source of action because just addressing the symptoms will never truly leave society absent of that issue. Unfortunately, each public administrator will also have his or own theory as to where the root of the issue lies and will try to address the symptoms accordingly. For example, when dealing with homelessness in a city, one public administrator might believe that the problem comes from inadequate housing, and another one will think that it's due to a lack of jobs, and yet another one might believe that it's due to the opioid epidemic. Um, And if each of those people were trying to curb homelessness in that city, the policies that they would create to address the problem would be vastly different based on where they believe the root of the problem actually lies. So we briefly have touched on the different stages of public policy creation, which is agenda setting, policy formulation, um, adoption or decision making, and implementation. And we talked about a few of the different characteristics that influence the processes and the outcomes which are persuasion, bargaining, and networked government governance. And we also talked about where to find them within that process. Then we discussed two of the biggest hurdles that policymakers must jump, expectations and root causes. And this is just a minimal list of concepts and ideas and controversies within this field. But for a moment, I think that we should discuss a few of the ideas that dominate the conversation in academics about public administration. There are three main ideas that surround current academic studies of public administration. The first idea is neutral professional bureaucracy. This idea, which was influenced by Weber in Europe and Woodrow Wilson here in America, took the practice from just a few courses at a university and really kind of set it on fire to create a truly valuable professional education that would help its students stand out from other university graduates. Their aim in doing this was to promote more civic participation and reduce public administrative corruption. By doing this, public offices would become more professional in nature. And after World War II came another set of changes into academics of public administration that was brought on by um, Aaron Wildavsky and his comrades. The post-war era for public administration called for yet more refinement for its students in multilateral public administration um, 
courses were created. Woldavsky added information about economics and budgeting and other social sciences, sciences into his PA course loads. And James March brought in the idea of behavioral sciences and how they matter in public service and organizational theories and whatnot. And the last idea has had a huge impact on PA education and the academic conversations that are influenced by it, and that is growing technology. Um, This has really changed the face of education in the field because it brought in more global students and with them different perspectives on public policy, what works, what doesn't work. Um, The increase in technology has made researching and analyzing policies, especially international policies, a lot easier. But it also kind of complicates things because it requires more assistance of computer engineering and other computer sciences to accurately analyze the influx of new data. But perhaps the biggest thing that tech has brought to public administration is the use of social media. And we're all familiar with this, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is, we all know about social media and what it can do. And while it could be a good thing, it seems like there's been a lot more negative side effects than one would hope. Social media is creating a rockier political arena, and it's increasing polarization in politics. Everyone is able to voice their opinions. And while this is wonderful, it's getting harder and harder to decipher factual information from the, con- the weird conspiracy theories and just opinions of random people. It's kind of creating this sea of angry and ill-informed masses that makes it hard for rational, evidence-based policies to find a good grip on society. On the other hand, I think that because of the growing skepticism of politicians and public servants, um, it's actually attracting a lot of people that are kind of yearning for a change and value professional, ethical public service. But there's still a great deal of questions that remain for the future of public administration and the education leading up to that professional career field. As time goes on, I'm curious to know how new public administrators will tackle the growing issue of political polarization and the skepticism. Um, I kind of want to know what new theories and ideas will be taught in the midst of this somewhat hostile environment. And how will the public sector adapt to the constant progress of technology? It's just ongoing. Technology is not going to stop. So how are public servants going to keep up? What sort of resources are going to be necessary to maintain that upkeep? A lot of people are worried that because so many other studies are now being integrated into the field of public administration, that it's losing the traits that once set it apart, Um, that neutral professional uh, public administrator that we talked about with Weber and uh, Wilson. It'll be interesting to see if public administration schools will become kind of a thing of the past or if they'll continue to churn out neutral professional bureaucrats. 
As for me, I'm one of those who is super excited to make progress in public policy. I want to leave behind a better America for my children and their children and their children. I want to show them that civic participation really does matter and I want them to seek the truth in everything. To me, public administration means bringing an awareness of public issues that we currently face to the limelight and finding ways to change what we do today to create a better tomorrow. Already in my field, I've developed a massively better understanding of my community and how it works and the people around me and the areas that require additional attention. So, to give you the short answer of what public policy and public administration means to me and what I think it means to my family. Public administration, for me, means hope. Hope for a better future. Hope for better public policies, better public administrators, and just a better future in general for our kids, for our community. And I'm really, really excited to make that happen. And I really, truly believe that we will make that happen. So I'm sorry if you came to this episode looking for another conversational topic to use with your in-laws, but I hope that you truly found it helpful nonetheless. As we go about our lives, I think that it's important to occasionally ask ourselves and others, what does this mean to you? It not only makes us stop and look at the world from a different perspective, but it also helps us on our journeys of self-awareness and self-discovery. And when someone asks you why you chose your career field, don't freeze up like I did. It immediately closes the gate to richer conversation and it leaves you and your companion sitting there in a really weird, awkward silence. Thank you for listening to Help, I'm Going to a Dinner Party. I'm Molly Ivan, and honestly, I'm just as awkward at small talk as you are. <laughs> <laughs>